Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy folks, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary Temporary Experts. Experts. Today's topic is the The weather. weather, because it's in the news. But first, some updates on some previous stories. Davis, you had an update. Yes, from it's from our <laughs> inaugural episode. Some of you may have checked it out uh, about the Mars rover Perseverance that landed. And we had mentioned, we talked a little bit about in that podcast about the Chinese mission as well. And uh, this is a bit of old news at this point. About a month ago now, I think, the uh, Chinese satellite launched its rover, which has successfully landed on the surface of Mars. So you can take a look at that. I think it sent some photos back now and stuff like that. But kind of interesting that the those missions keep kind of going ahead as planned. Mars rover party. Yeah, exa- exactly. Maybe they'll all... I think they're all, like, on... Obviously, Mars is a big planet. It's nah, a planet. Mars River uh, Party. <laughs> <laughs> fun to imagine them singing happy birthday to each other. I don't know. Yeah. That's like what a, people were big about. Yeah, like a little Wally situation, you know? <laughs> Great. Yeah. But on Mars. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, relating to our last topic of mm-hmm. bugs, I sent it to my friend, who I dubbed Bug Soup, within a couple <laughs> days of meeting them, and uh, they wanted me to let uh, Davis know, and I'm letting everyone know, that they approve uh, they approved of our the bug soup of our bug episode. Yeah, yeah. I guess yep. the inclusion, perhaps the nickname. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just wanted. They they were very much enjoyed getting shouted out. I'm sure. Yeah, who doesn't with yeah. a nickname like bug soup? With a nickname like bug soup. Uh, yeah, and I wanted to say actually. So I went camping after we recorded that episode, and I know in the episode I I betrayed my lack of uh, bug knowledge because I couldn't identify any of the bugs as you were describing them. Yeah, not a, not very much of a lepidopterist. Oh, ooh, ooh. good word, good word. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I actually I did start to uh, to notice some of them while I was out there uh, camping. I did. I definitely noticed some uh, the tiger swallowtail and, and the little silver and blue one. <laughs> Yeah, we saw a few of the silver and blue ones. I, I used to see those in the town. And then there was the one you were describing where the wings close and it's all like brown and stuff on the outside. Yeah, and then the silver blue on the inside. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, we definitely saw a few of those. So that was, that was great. That was really good. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. Learning learning something practical. Yay. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so so well done. Well, good job curating your bugs for that for that episode. Thank you. To, thank you. Yeah. I picked the one I picked the one butterfly that I always see. Oh, okay. So there you go. I, I stacked the deck in my favor. Well now I've seen it too. <laughs> and maybe you have. Let us know. <laughs> yeah. Listeners. I, I didn't I didn't get any bug drawings Aww. on Twitter or anything, but that's okay. I was so looking forward to bug drawings. You can still send them <laughs> yeah, to us if you want. Exactly. So <laughs> what are we talking about today, Sarah? <laughs> honestly, one of my favorite things to talk about. Yes, that's weather. true. If you live in Calgary, like we do, uh, the weather is not small talk. It is a legitimate topic of conversation to have with people for a while. I think the joke slogan or for time i think the real slogan even in the city was like if you don't like the weather wait five minutes and it'll change yeah unfortunately that was not really true uh a week ago was it uh, yeah. a little over a week ago now um thank goodness but feels like a millennium ago because it was so, it was so brutally hot last week yeah it was uh it was pretty ridiculous uh someone who's only been in calgary about five years mm. i was used to weather blowing in and out pretty quickly and then the last couple of winters, we've had some cold snaps that like really lasted. And then there was the forest fire summer. This summer we had a heat wave. 
uh, and we're gonna have more. So we thought we'd talk about it. Yeah, so obviously um, it was pretty hard to avoid this particular piece of news uh, over the last week, whether you were in BC or Alberta or on America's West Coast. Uh, there was a historic record-breaking heat wave for 10 days uh, or so as it kind of moved across from the Pacific inland a bit more, and it actually kind of has continued to move across the country a little bit. Uh, and yeah, so we did kind of want to preface this conversation a little bit because like we are, we're going to talk about the weather, but strictly speaking, we're talking about climate change. Uh, it's a heavy topic for a lot of people, including ourselves. It was, you know, we had to, we had to delay recording by a couple of days to get ourselves right. And research is hard for this, but we really just wanted to, uh, to take a moment and really just reflect upon the fact that we are going to talk about this topic. Obviously we're going to try to intersperse a little bit of joviality here and there, just because it is such a heavy topic, but, uh, we really wanted to just address like that. Yeah. This, this heat wave, uh, it did, you know, it did claim a lot of lives and, Obviously, you've probably heard some of the stories out of Lytton, BC, other parts of BC that are dealing with historic, you know, intense forest fires right now. So a lot of people have lost their homes, their livelihoods. Some people have lost their lives. And we just wanted to be respectful of of what those people have gone through and what this heat wave has caused. But we felt it was a really important thing to talk about, Um, obviously, because, yeah, the weather is something that affects all of us. That's why it's such a stereotype to talk about it. Uh, And just like Sarah said, we're going to start to deal with we're going to deal with these types of extreme weather events a lot going forward. Um, I even think, cause you weren't, you, you missed the flood year, right? I did. I was not, I came here yeah. a couple years after the flood. Yeah. Yeah. And I, at least, you know, I grew up in Calgary, obviously spent some years living in Ontario, but I remember what the weather was like, or, you know, what the climate was like here when I was a kid. And it's definitely different now. Mm-hmm. And I actually think we, you know, we talk, start to talk about, yeah, these changing weather systems. And I really think back to that that year of the flood and you do that's that was it was caused by a weather system that didn't move on as quickly as normally the weather systems move on here now that one wasn't strictly speaking as much caused by climate change per se but i mean it's always hard to make those black and white determinations with this kind of stuff like climate is such a complicated system right absolutely Mm -hmm. and this these extreme weather events like davis was saying they're gonna they're gonna keep happening they're going to start happening with more frequency which we will get into in a bit Mm -hmm. um but it kind of it kind of makes it less fun to talk about the weather like yeah as as someone i've I've had some jobs where you have to you're speaking with the public a lot and so you you're having these very brief conversations with a lot of people in a day and it's hard to know like what do i talk about uh how do i like keep this interesting for everyone but light and you don't want to like get into the like personal stories and stuff Mm -hmm. so it's like oh i can talk about the weather you know, and moving to Calgary and then having it be, yeah, wait five minutes and the weather will change. There's a snowball about uh, Calgary. Or there's a, a, a there's snowball. A, <laughs> there's a quote. <laughs> I don't remember who it's by. A quote about Calgary of like, Calgary's a great place to live if you like fighting mosquitoes with snowballs in July. That's yeah. very true. Yeah. Uh, but as the weather events get a little more extreme and a little more frequent, it's less fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. And it's a heavy topic for a lot of people. Yeah, so, very heavy. It just impacts so many people. It impacts literally all of us. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, we've alluded in a number of different episodes now that we, we've we we've known that we're, we're going to eventually cover climate change because it, yeah. it, every so often it appears in the news. Every and so often, yeah. all the time. Yeah. It perpetually in the back of my mind. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. And uh, and it is. It's, a, it's one of those problems that unfortunately, like as an average person, it's easy to get very, to feel very hopeless about because you're mm-hmm. dealing with 
like these massive systems, these planetary systems that we still don't understand super. It's not like we're, yeah, it's not like we just know, you know, how the jet stream or how the, you know, North Atlantic current works off the back of our hands. Like we know a lot about these systems, but we, we're going to learn a lot more about them as some of these systems, unfortunately, start to start to collapse or change as a result of, of you know, climate change really absolutely and we have some information on weather that dates back like 100 more than 100 years based on like fossil records and the climate data that way mm-hmm. but there's other things that we've only really been measuring for like 20 years you yes, know true. in terms of like specifics yep. so yeah it, it's there's, there's a lot left to learn and now we get to learn under pressure a little bit yeah <laughs> i mean I, you know we'll talk about this towards the end like that you know human beings are have shown you know obviously we're a pretty resilient species is how we've gotten to this point mm-hmm. and we're yeah. very innovative and you know there are, we've solved lots of these complex problems in the past and we'll save that discussion kind of for the end so that we don't leave you uh <laughs> <laughs> you know hopeless and adrift in the sea of climate change you know doomsday news but yeah we thought that you know there was a lot of news over the last week about the heat wave and what was causing it and obviously a lot of recognition that you know, climate change was a huge, huge contributor to this, this heat wave. And yeah, we just wanted to talk a little bit about how those, how these things happen and stuff like that. So I thought, uh, so where do you want to start, Sarah? Let's start in Lytton. Yes. Lytton, BC. Mm-hmm. So uh, Lytton, BC, this past week broke its heat records. Uh, so it was previously 45 degrees Celsius. And then Lytton hit 46.6 degrees Celsius. And then the next day, 47.9 degrees Celsius. And the next day, 49.6 degrees Celsius, Mm -hmm. which is wildly hot. And other places were experiencing this too. So Portland, Oregon, again, pretty close to the coast. uh, Their previous record was, I'm going to use Celsius, friends, uh, was 41.7 degrees Celsius. But the new records, they got 42.2 degrees Celsius on Saturday, uh, June 26th, 44.4 degrees Celsius on Sunday, and 46.6 degrees Celsius on Monday, which equates to 116 degrees Fahrenheit. And 116 degrees Fahrenheit is one degree Fahrenheit higher than the average daily high on June 18th or June 28th, the same day, in Death Valley, California, one of the hottest places in the States. So it got pretty hot, and the these intense heat episodes can really increase the risk of severe forest fires like we saw in Lytton. And the reason it does this is the intense heat really it dries areas really really quickly and that makes them much more susceptible to fire yeah and un- unfortunately now they're they're sort of believing that the litten fire so if you hadn't heard about it unfortunately yeah so litten had these three record breaking days of high temperatures it's actually you know the first day it was breaking a 100 year old record and yeah. then broke that record 3 days in a row yeah. and uh and then unfortunately yes there was a fire in the town and the town is basically gone um yeah. There, you know, it was quite, it, it's quite the tragic story. Uh, it is just one of over 200 forest fires that are currently burning in BC. And yeah, it, uh, they do believe that the Lytton fire may have been like caused, you know, human caused. Oh, now no. they don't know, like, you know, there's some reports from the town that 
that it may have been sparked by a passing train. Sometimes mm-hmm. trains, as they're moving across the tracks, will emit sparks. Uh, but originally, there was some belief that the fire was caused by some lightning strikes in the area. But they now believe that it that the fire may have originated sort of in the center of the town and may have been human caused. But again, just like Sarah's saying, right, you create this situation where you, you're living in a tinderbox, essentially. Yeah. It's gotten so hot, so dry. You know, in Canada, most of our homes are made out of wood. So even though the wood is drying and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and it just creates these conditions for, for forest fire, fires to spark really, really quickly. And in Lytton, it, the, it happened so quickly, records I was hearing, where people had like 15 minutes from when they heard that they had to get out to the town being engulfed in flames. Yeah, yeah. So. And and this is something that happens too if you live in an area, um, a remote area especially, or an area where there are lots of forest fires and you're in a more forested area. It, it can happen really fast, you know. Um, especially depending on the wind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You, hear these, you hear these harrowing stories of people who, you know, the fire is on, you know, it's miles and miles away and then all of a sudden the entire property is encircled in, in the forest fire. And, you know, so it's quite, you know, it's quite tragic. There's no real underselling how awful what has been going on in BC is, how many people are being displaced, how many homes are at risk. And, you know, our heart goes out to those people, obviously. Uh, it's, it's a tragic event, right? And, uh, you know, it feels a little trivial to talk about it, but it's, this is, this is, this is why we're covering this topic because it, it, it was, it was big news and, and it's um, important, you know, it's important to not shy away from talking about things just because they're difficult. That's true. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, exactly. And that, I mean, that's going to be this whole thing with climate change yeah. in general, right? It's like, we're going to have to talk about it. We're going to have to demand that our politicians talk about it, that they address it. Um, yeah. But uh, we'll get into that a little bit. But we don't, we don't want this to get too political either, because yeah, the climate change conversation gets very political, but they're, you know, the science is the science. It's, it's yeah. not up for that kind of debate, in my opinion. I know that's maybe still a bit of opinion, but... It's been made into a bipartisan issue, but the global climate affects all of us, and the -hmm. science is telling us some very clear stuff. Yeah, (laughs) and I think that that, for me, that's kind of, like, why I think I really wanted us to talk about this, at least, like, for me personally. Like, I think we we were both in agreement on this topic for sure, but I think part of it was because... It's such a polarized topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so politicized, so polarized... So, okay, so where should we start? Should we talk about, let's talk about what happened. So you might have heard, if you were uh, really keeping up with this story, that you might have heard this term like heat dome brought up a lot. And that the heat dome was responsible for this historic heat wave and that's why it kind of moved across and why it stayed for so long and all these things. Basically, we got to talk like a little bit about some like meteorology stuff. So you might have sort of seen like if you ever watch like the news and the person standing in front of the green screen and they're pointing and like, you know, all the fronts are moving around and stuff. So you might have heard terms like high pressure front, low pressure front, those sorts of things, westerly winds, the jet stream, things like that, right? All these meteorological terms. uh, Demonstrated with tiny arrows. Yeah, they're always demonstrated (laughs) with tiny arrows, right? So basically... um, you, you know, obviously the atmosphere is a gas. It's this free-flowing gas, all these different mixtures of molecules together and things like that. And you can get these sections of air that are higher pressure. So the, you know, the particles are all kind of pushed closer together and lower pressure areas. Where the particles are farther apart. Farther apart, exactly. And typically weather is what happens when different fronts meet each other under certain different conditions. And that's okay. what forms these different weather systems and things like that. 
Now in Calgary, the reason the weather changes so frequently is because we are, we're in a natural corridor for one, we're in an area that's sometimes referred to as a microclimate uh, because we're near the foothills and the mountains and then we're on our, in our river valley as well. Uh, and then we're, you know, formerly a glacier valley, you know, and under uh, an inland sea. So there's sort of certain um, geological features around us and things like that. It causes the weather to kind of move through a bit of a corridor. So it's a bit of a microclimate where even in within the city of Calgary, you can have wildly different climates or weather at different part, parts of the day, you know, where it might be raining in one section of town and completely dry in the other section. Yeah, mm -hmm. I had a, an experience one time. I was uh, on campus when I at the University of Calgary and I was talking to a friend and they were supposed to come and meet me and they said, like, oh, I was going to walk, but I can't. And it was like, uh, this was 20 minutes away. It's like, I can't walk because it's raining. And I looked outside and it was just a clear sky. I was like, yep. what are you talking about? And they took a video and they sent it to me and it was like pouring, hmm. super heavy downfall, which made its way to campus a bit later. But yeah, no, Calgary is a... Like wherever you are in Calgary, it's it's different everywhere else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, and yeah, and so part of the reason why the weather moves so quickly in Calgary is because we're right in the path of this this westerly wind, this jet stream that sort of pushes air over the mountains and then across the prairies. And it brings a lot of the weather with it and things like that. That's why we get things like Chinooks and, yeah. and these sorts of things in the wintertime. And Chinooks are like momentarily, momentary lightning of heavy winter conditions. Yeah, it's 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 warm, dry air that's brought down from the mountains and like kind of sweeps into the valley and it pushes away a lot of that cold air and it, it can create a plus 15 degree temperature swing when it comes in. And it's, uh, you can usually, they're very identifiable because there's a nice arc in the clouds it's called a Chinook arch. Mm -hmm. And it's just a shape that the clouds make that's very indicative. And that comes from uh, a lot of the indigenous ways of knowing that's the word Chinook, it's an indigenous mm -hmm. word. That's, you know, the, the people that lived here originally, the Blackfoot and the other First Nations that were part of these, this region, they, that, they identified this system many, many thousands of years ago. Anyway, so the, the, the jet stream generally pushes weather through Calgary very quickly. If you live in Calgary, you can actually look out to the east on some mornings and on really windy mornings, you'll see, if, if you look out at the right time in the morning, you can see this, some days, this like thick line of smog above the horizon you'll see it as a little it'll look kind of dirty right it's just sort of that brownish air and that is all of the air pollution from like the city that's getting pushed by the wind and sort of pushed on to saskatchewan oh um, sorry saskatchewan yeah well you know and so <laughs> it, that sort of it just is a good illustration of how quickly the weather moves in calgary and it's because of this jet stream so what happened with the heat dome is that, uh, and we'll get into like why the jet streams are changing as a result of climate change, yeah. but basically is that the jet stream sort of stalled out for this period of time and this high pressure front settled over the area. And basically what that does is it pushes all of the other air kind of away from it, this high pressure front, it creates this dome. And the air then becomes very stationary. And so what's happening is it's this big high pressure dome, uh, you know, a dome of pressure and it's, and all the winds and things like that are getting pushed around it because it's such a strong um, force, essentially, it's pressure like, force. Such a like densely packed area of heat. Yeah. And then what happens, right, is that that, that air is not moving anymore. Yeah. And then it's continuously getting heated by the sun and it's, you know, and then from the back up from the ground radiation and things like that. So it's just getting trapped. Light, I mean, obviously, when we talk about climate change, we talk about the greenhouse effect a lot. Yeah. It's essentially like a miniaturized version of that, yeah. where you are having this 
greenhouse of heat because the the pressure is trapped all around this area. I mean, you can think of it if you if you're boiling water in a pot on the stove, and if you put a lid, or you don't. Yes, right? that's how a... much faster does it boil when you put a lid on? Because that heat is coming up, it's hitting the lid or the dome, it's hitting yeah. the lid and it's coming back down, and it's like it's that convection heat, right? It, exactly. Yeah. So that that's a hundred percent it, right? And then and then as well, because it's heating up, you're actually making this pressure dome worse and worse as time yeah. goes on, right? It's just it's just this feedback loop. Yeah, exactly. So it got very, very hot. And basically, and then this dome slowly sort of moved itself over from like the West Coast into Alberta and then kind of over to the rest of the nation. So yeah, so that's kind of what this heat dome that you might have been hearing about was and that's really like what the cause of all of this was if you were in calgary last week when the heat dome broke essentially or moved on we got a massive storm on the friday night yeah. um and i mean again most thunderstorms are caused when it's very hot during the day and then it cools off at night you know generally we get a lot of thunderstorms here in calgary but they're usually late in the evening and things like that mm -hmm. sometimes they'll produce hail yeah those sorts of things yeah that's a that's a fun calgary thing <laughs> i didn't experience much hail in ontario and oh boy, mm. it always happens in like July. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. And and even like, so hail gets so bad in Alberta that we actually have a provincial program for seeding the clouds. So oh. there's a technology where you basically, you take a, a plane, a small plane will fly up into rain clouds that are being sort of noted as, oh, these have the potential for forming ice or hail. And the plane will go up and it essentially, usually it's like a silver nitrate or something like that. It's like a silver crystal. And what that does is it just creates all these small nucleation sites for the ice to start to form around. And then it causes it to fall right away. So you typically try to do this before it reaches like the city and stuff like that, because it doesn't, it could, because hail can cause an insane amount of damage. In yeah. fact, the hail storm, <laughs> was that two years ago now or last summer? Uh, I think it was last year because yeah. I it, it got really bad in the there was a this ridiculous billion dollar damage hailstorm and yeah. I, I I do want to touch on it later but that happened in northeast Calgary and I had just moved to northeast Calgary but I moved to like the very edge of it mm -hmm. and then uh, the next day I was getting messages from family in Ontario being like are you okay are you okay we heard about the hailstorm like we know what area you're in yeah. and I had had like pea size hail where I was so I was like it was it was intense but it wasn't bad and then I saw pictures of this like tennis ball sized hail that happened not too far from me and yeah mm -hmm. that was bad yeah it was actually the fourth largest uh it was the fourth most expensive natural disaster in like albertan history and like it only came second to the flood or like behind the flood by like a few, you know by a little bit wow. um and yeah so and actually that the cloud seeding program is run by insurance companies because that makes they, sense. because it costs <laughs> them so much money when these things happen uh and one of the reasons why sometimes we get, uh, why we're going to see more of these types of hailstorms in Calgary is because forest fires actually contribute to the production of hail. Uh, well, you well, know. In intense mm -hmm. thunderstorms in general. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I alluded to it a little bit when talking about the heat dome, but this idea that the reason why some of these weather systems are hanging around a little bit more than we're used to, especially in a place like Calgary, is because some of these forces that really dictate the climate and control weather are starting to change. So, um, you know, this is, I like this topic in some ways because have you ever seen the movie The Day After Tomorrow? Yes. Okay. So I love the movie The Day After Tomorrow. My brothers and I, we watched that movie when we were kids like, all the time. Oh my Just, God, I saw it once and I was so scared. 
Yeah, it's a frightening <laughs> movie. It totally holds up, I will say. I watched it okay. recently. It totally holds up. Great movie. Mm. Um, it, uh, there's one really bizarre scene. That's beside the point. The wolves? Uh, the wolves. The wolves are very strange. That is seared into my memory. <laughs> yeah, because it's such a bizarre <laughs> section of the film. These the like worst. CGI wolves that end up on a Russian tanker ship that somehow ends up in, in the, the middle of the city. In the middle of New York and they need penicillin to save one of their friends. It's it, watch the movie. It, it's it's worth the watch. Um sure. but it, you know, it's obviously the sci-fi representation of like if climate change all of a sudden basically happened overnight. Yeah. Um, but one of the things they talk about in it is a real thing. It's called the North Atlantic Current. And basically it's that, it you know, between the warm water at the equator, which gets a lot of sun all year round, and the cold water of the Arctic, there is a current that runs along the Atlantic. And this is why areas in, you know, you know, parts of England and Northern Europe are quite temperate for parts of the year is because there's this cycle of warm water from the equator coming up to the Arctic and being cooled down and cooled water from the Arctic coming down and cooling areas of the equator. And it basically just regulates the temperature in that zone. In the movie, it's like a big science fiction thing where like all of a sudden the North Atlantic current like stops overnight and it causes these like massive ice storms and like this huge cold front and all these crazy things start happening and it's insane weather and Insane weather, insane weather. And and then Dennis Quaid goes to rescue Jake Gyllenhaal at the New York Public Library. But And there's a scene where the, the, the frost is happening on, is so, fast so fast and people are yeah, people freezing are sprinting solid. Away and, and having to slam the door and they're burning books. It's very dramatic. Yeah, yeah it's very dramatic. But, you know, <laughs> as much as this movie is like ridiculous early 2000s, like Roland Emmerich disaster movie, movie the thing is, is that this is sort of what's happening now. Obviously, it's not going to be as dramatic as a Hollywood movie, but... So slightly slower. Our weather systems really depend upon the temperature gradient between the Arctic and the equator, right? And again, this, a lot of this has to do with the Earth's tilt, um, because we're going to get different sun at the equator at different times of year and all these sorts of things. And you've probably heard a lot of the conversation around... Uh, ice loss in the Arctic, the disappearance of summer ice in the Arctic mm -hmm. specifically, right? Because normally the Arctic is cold enough in the winter and then only heated up for a small portion of the summer that a lot of the ice remains. Yeah. And it's this type of ice is really important for a lot of the animals that live in the Arctic, like Huge. the polar bear. But what's starting to happen is the pole regions of the Earth, the North and South Pole, and the Northern regions and the most Southerly regions of the Earth are starting to warm up faster than the other portions of the earth. So obviously one of the big things we talk about with climate change is a global temperature increase. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the targets for climate change are to try to reduce the overall change in temperature to about one and a half degrees for this global average. That that has actually been exceeded in parts of the Arctic and the and the South and the Antarctic. Now it, it you know it's Cause for concern, it's not a doomsday scenario. It's just that these areas are going to heat up faster because of the nature of the Earth's tilt and the way the greenhouse gases work and things like that. Absolutely. And the the feedback loop that I mentioned before with the, like with you have your your pot on your or your lid on your pot and it's heating up faster with losing things like ice and snow, that's also it speeds things up because the ice acts as a blanket over the earth, but it also has, acts as a reflective shield. Mm -hmm. So if the sun's rays come down and they hit something white and bright like snow um, or ice, it the rays will just bounce off. They don't get absorbed. And that helps to send the heat back into space and the earth can stay cooler. But if that starts to melt and then all of a sudden you can see ground or you can see water, especially deep water, because deep water is typically very dark. Mm. 
then the ground or the water will absorb the sun's rays, will absorb that heat, and then now any ice or snow, any ice or snow that does exist in the area, it's going to get hit with stuff from above and heat from below of a rising, a rising like ground temperature and a rising water temperature. So it really, when these places start warming up, they're going to start warming up faster and faster as well. <laughs> so what has happened is because they're warming up faster and faster is that the temperature gradient between the average temperature at the equator and the average temperature at the pole has started to decrease. Now, quick lesson in thermodynamics, heat always wants to go from areas of high heat to low heat. Uh, it's, it's a fundamental law of physics. And so when there's a great temperature difference between the Arctic and the equator, you're going to see a lot of energy transfer between those two areas. That's why you get things like the like the North Atlantic Current. That's why you get things like the jet stream. And the jet stream is just these major overarching uh, wind forces that are in the high atmosphere that are, you know, basically pulling weather along, to just put it simply. Yeah, and you can see this with like if you take a cup of coffee or hot chocolate and you sit outside and it's cold. Mm -hmm. How fast does it cool down? Because your heat is escaping and trying to yes. trying to balance out and make everything the same temperature. Mm -hmm. Or another way to think about it is sometimes if you've ever had an, if you have like an insulated mug or you bought an insulated mm -hmm. mug, sometimes it'll have a number on it. It'll be like, this is how many hours I'll keep a hot beverage hot. And then it'll be like, this is how many ever hours I'll keep a cold beverage cold. And the cold one is always higher because it's harder for the energy. It's easier to lose energy to the atmosphere than it is for energy to penetrate that insulated wall and warm up whatever is inside your, your thermo, uh, thermos or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, random tip. Mm. I, I want to add because I just remembered it. Uh, the first time I went camping this season was in early May and it snowed on us. Mm. And that night I made spaghetti. And I realized that spaghetti is a bad thing to make when you're camping because it can't hold its own. It doesn't hold heat. Mm. So we had warm spaghetti oh, yeah. for like a couple of bites. And then we oh. had cold spaghetti oh, for no. the rest of it. <laughs> I don't think so I've ever attempted to make spaghetti while camping. That seems like quite the endeavor. Well, I chose it because it was easy. Like to make spaghetti overall is very uh, yeah, simple, true. right? You just like boil water. Boil water. <laughs> but then I learned a valuable lesson. Oh, that and is now interesting. You don't have to learn that lesson yourself. <laughs> But back to weather. Yeah, and uh, and and for an illustration of like the jet stream, if you've ever flown across the country, like if you've ever gone from like Calgary to Ontario, the flight is a shorter distance Calgary to Ontario than Ontario to Calgary because you're flying with the jet stream in one direction and against the jet stream in another direction. Maybe. Oh, because so the last time that I flew to Ontario, it was we actually got back in pretty good time. Like we got there really quickly, mm -hmm. and then when I came back, we got back in pretty good time. So I wonder if a less strong jet stream would have impacted and made that flight faster. Yeah, uh -huh. it's like it usually depends on like what the headwinds are like. Yeah. But yeah, there those headwinds are controlled by the jet stream. Yeah. So as these temperature gradients start to to become less extreme, a lot of these systems that rely on it or that's what moves them are starting to slow down. And that's what happened with this heat dome and why it stayed in place for so long. And then just like Sarah said, it's this positive feedback loop of it gets hot, so it gets hotter, so it gets hotter, so it stays in place longer, so it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And that's really what, you know, it that's what generated this heat wave. And those sorts of increasing heat and especially if you have something like a forest fire and you're getting all this smoke, it can really create these worse storms because this pressure can just build up and, and keep increasing. And with the, the storms over Lytton, uh, the, the thunderstorms when they were having, when the forest fire began and all of that, mm -hmm. the storm over Lytton had over 700,000 lightning flashes. 
So between like cloud to cloud and cloud to ground, and 100,000 of those were cloud to ground. And this 700,000 lightning flashes was 5% of Canadian yearly average, which is wild. In then, one storm. In yeah. one storm. And then these these thunderstorms, as we know, lightning can create, cause fire. So this, all of these thunderstorms is just going to increase the chance of a forest fire or a fire being ignited. And especially if the area has been hit by intense heat, the area is really dry and the lightning is going to have a higher chance of actually starting that fire. And with lightning, you like I used to think of it as like lightning hits and all of a sudden you have a fire and that's the way it's always represented. But lightning can, it can strike a, strike a tree, say, and then cause an ember to start glowing. And that ember can actually smolder for weeks before it becomes a fire. So we're seeing fires now, and then we could also be seeing fires a couple weeks into the future, just based on kind of how long it stays dry and how long they have to just smolder there. And this is another one of these positive feedback loops mm -hmm. of that the smoke from a forest fire also aids in the generation of lightning. Uh, if you there's a really really amazing series of gifs on uh, that NASA put out of satellite imagery over Lytton BC that shows the smoke start to proliferate from the fires around the area and you can see the lightning begin to arc and they're they're capturing you know all like tons and tons of these lightning strikes all back to back and one of the reasons that this is happening right is that so when something burns um you know so think about you've got your log and it's burning in your fireplace or whatever that log is mostly made out of, of these big molecules of car you know with mostly carbon in them then you're breaking all of these bonds apart and you're having all these little particles of carbon fly away you know, the reaction usually you're ending up with CO2 and heat and then a little bit of water as well uh, that's coming off as vapor. But this, the there's other parts of the carbon because uh, basically that that's imperfect combustion. Those are the only things you get out, heat, CO2 and water. Most combustion is not perfect because you're not getting enough oxygen in to balance out with the amount of fuel you have. You can tell this with your flame color yes. as well. If, you're, if your flame is burning more of that orange color we associate with like a campfire, that is this imperfect, right? Not perfect combustion. Yeah. Uh, and if your combustion is perfect, like you'd see with a Bunsen burner, uh, you're going to get more of a blue flame because that means that your oxygen, you're, you have a perfect ratio of oxygen to fuel as opposed to your regular combustion where you're going to end up with some other byproducts like ash. Yeah. And actually what you are seeing when you look at a, a fire, um, like a, you know, uh, like a fireplace fire, and you're seeing that orange or the candle, you're seeing what's called black body radiation. So it's these pieces, it is, it's the radiation in the split second as that the bond between two carbon molecules gets heated up just like the filament in an incandescent light bulb, ah. right? It gets so, uh, basically there's so much friction or so much energy in there that it glows. It's essentially what's happening and then it breaks. So you're seeing this sort of like this split second moment, uh, but it's obviously happening over and over and over again. But often what happens in a fire like that is you're releasing these carbon molecules, the soot and things like that and other molecules as well. But they're often coming off as ions because the energy is so intense that you're getting a lot of like free radicals and things like that. That's why sometimes they say that you shouldn't um, eat certain burnt foods because you generate what happens when some of those foods get burnt is they generate free radicals. Oh. And for, so a free radical is, is typically is a little complex chemistry, but typically is you get with a molecule, you might remember like the Bohr model, right? And you got the eight valence electrons and they're all paired up. It's a little bit, the Bohr model is not a good approximation of how atoms are really organized and things like that. But, but it's much easier to understand than the clouds. Well, <laughs> I mean, 
I don't know. As a chemist, I would argue the opposite. Actually, I think the clouds make more sense. But this I, is a discussion I, for another day. <laughs> I felt very betrayed when I when I got to university, and yes. they were like, "The Bohr model is a lie. Electrons exist in these cloud shapes." Yeah, I was mad. Yeah. Anyway, but even within the cloud shapes, is that or even with the typical Bohr model that you learn at high school and stuff like that, is the electrons are almost always paired up. You've got a positive spin and a negative spin. We, sometimes we draw them with an up arrow or a down arrow. It's a half spin. It's a quantum number. Anyway. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but basically what it means is they're always almost paired up because this is stable. The energies are balancing themselves out. Um, but in a free radical, and oxygen is actually a free radical in its sort of free form, in its... In its um, Oxygen in its molecular form actually has a free radical on either oxygen molecule. And what that is, it's a lone electron rather than an electron pair. Is this why we hear about antioxidants? This is 100% why you hear about antioxidants. So this is why there's some belief that cancer is sort of unavoidable, like you, that all living creatures that use oxygen will get cancer because... One, oxygen ended up being this thing that we were using for cellular respiration to create energy because it's so reactive. Ah. So a free radical is extremely reactive because it's this lone electron that doesn't like the situation it's in. And it wants to tear an electron off of anything that will give it to it. It's looking for that stability. Exactly. So that's why um, that's why we talk about antioxidants. Antioxidants are things that will take a free radical and and will either give it its electron or it will tear that electron away so it's no longer a free radical. So it'll basically absorb free radicals. But what happens in these forest fires is you get all these ions of different types. Some of them free radicals, some of them are just positive and negative charges, and they end up in the clouds, essentially. And this creates, uh, instead of cumulus clouds, this is our standard, like, the kind of the big fluffy cloud with the, the flat bottom, mm -hmm. um, you get pyrocumulus clouds, which are when ash and smoke from the forest fires filled the atmosphere. And this uh, these clouds are also formed because when you're burning like a forest, you have a ton of moisture from plants, like plants have such a high moisture content, and steam from ponds and streams. So this creates your big water-laden cloud that is also full of ash and smoke. And so these uh, the pyrocumulus are tend to be more in the brownish grayish color as opposed to the bright white that we're used to. And if they become uh, like a thunderstorm cloud version of this, it's called pyrocumulonimbus, which is very fun to say, but a very scary natural thing. Mm -hmm. um, and you can think of uh, pyrocumulus clouds. Uh, an example actually that's man-made is the mushroom cloud. Yes, that's right. So mm -hmm. that, that really helped me be like, oh, that kind of cloud, like dark. Um, it's So it's got the color, it's moving up really quickly with all this heat, but it has this kind of channel to the earth, which is what these clouds would have because as, as they pull up the smoke and this ash into the, and the, and the heat from the fire, this intense heat going up and just making the cloud more angry. Mm -hmm. And obviously you have all of this, yeah, this heat from the forest fire. It's pushing all the moisture and things up into the atmosphere and it gets high up into the atmosphere. And this is what causes some of it to start to cool off. And this is right. why you sort of get these thunderstorms and things. And one of the things that will happen is with your, the particulate matter that ends up in these clouds is they form, just like I was saying with the seeding the clouds where yeah. you're purposefully trying to create nucleation sites. So the ice forms and, and falls out of the sky quickly. What happens is you have all these particles of dust, essentially mm -hmm. smoke and things like that in the atmosphere. And they are a place for water droplets to start to form together. All the vapor that's in the air starts to coalesce into droplets. And then you're taught, we're talking about, you know, thousands of meters up into the atmosphere it's really cold yeah. and they start to form ice balls and at the right in the right combination of conditions and then 
ice is obviously pretty heavy. It's not going to stay in the clouds very long. Falls back down to earth as hail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or it can fall back down just as rain, depending as on rain. how yeah. the conditions form. Yeah. Uh, but uh, my favorite quote in researching for this episode is about these pyrocumulonimbus clouds. And it's from a NASA article. And it says, pyrocumulonimbus is the fire-breathing dragon of clouds. And that felt really accurate. Mm -hmm. And that is because they produce so much lightning. And again, it's these yeah. charged particles. Lightning is, again, it's about an energy differential. It's about energy just moving through the atmosphere. It's why it takes certain conditions for lightning to get really intense is because like air is actually a really good insulator. That's why some of your um, insulated bottles, for example, will be double walled. And all that's in between those two walls is just air, usually. Some of the really fancy ones will put some special gas or it'll be a vacuum and all that stuff. But typically you can just, you can insulate stuff with air. That's why you have a lot of foam insulation, right? Exactly, exactly. Because the empty space is really what's creating the insulation, the empty space full of air. Uh, so it takes a lot of energy for electricity to freely move between particles in the air. And basically that's what thunderstorms are. It's this huge energy differential that all of a sudden you've got an electron moving through the, the particles in the air, the, the, uh, the gases that make up our atmosphere. Just a lot of energy. So much energy. Mm -hmm. And it's all looking to escape. Because it all, it all wants to be stable, right? Yes. And this is a very unstable condition to be in. Mm -hmm. in the clouds exactly and that's again why so much weather is caused by a low pressure front hitting a high pressure front or a high pressure front hitting a low pressure front now i'm not a meteorologist so i'm not an expert <laughs> on all of the different weather systems and how they form and stuff like that but it's it is it's when you've got these huge discrepancies and they want to meet up the dam wants to break and they want to all even out that's where you get these big discharges of crazy weather because it just you know, it's got, everything wants to be balanced for the most part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And these sorts of extreme weather events, we're going to be seeing them more and more. As we mentioned at the beginning of this, they, as a lot of them are these positive feedback loops. And then as this jet stream that flows around the planet and pushes air around the planet, as it slows, then things like heat domes are going to become more constant or they're going to last for longer periods of time they're going to because the air is not going to be able to get blown out of there. If you do have a storm, it could get really bad. There's some areas like, well, some areas are seeing massive drought. Other areas are seeing these prolonged heavy rainfalls that are causing flooding. I think Detroit recently flooded parts of Detroit. Yeah. So these, these sorts of extreme weather events, we're going to start seeing more and more. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah. And so it's part of it is these jet streams are, they're changing speeds. They're changing shapes as well. Like the yeah. directions of them are changing. They're not moving in the same ways that they used to. Yeah. One is like moving more north now. So it's going to pull weather in a different direction. Exactly. And, uh, and this is one of the big things that, that becomes concerning about these changes and these climate changes, right? Is that like, we're an agricultural society. It's why eventually human beings ended up not having, you know, in certain cultures, they didn't have to roam the land anymore. Things that started to create farms, things like that, uh, raise crops, those sorts of things was because there was this pattern of events that was very predictable. So, you know, certain jurisdictions, certain areas, they have a rainy season, right? So, you know, okay, well, you want to get your heart, you want to plant before the rainy season so that your plants get all this rain, you know, you want to harvest before certain times of the year because it's where the weather's going to turn. And so you've probably heard of something like the farmer's almanac, yeah, right? Yeah. Farmer's almanac is literally like this piece of knowledge that we kind of, you know, it's essentially like a dictionary for the weather yeah. and, it, and it's an understanding of like all of the patterns. And so for a 
long time, the farmer's almanac would literally have instructions of like, this is when you should plant certain crops. This yeah. is when you might want to like, you know, rear certain livestock animals and things like that. Because like, these are the patterns that we've learned over hundreds of years. So we know that, you know, or we're going to see these types of systems this year. Like it's why we've known about things like El Nino for hundreds of years, yeah. because people started to just record these patterns in the weather and create this picture of climate and use that to predict and make choices about their life. Yeah, and we can see that these these patterns are changing with data that we have and especially looking at uh, the animal world. So with, with plants, there's definitely like, you're not supposed to plant until after last frost and last frost gets earlier. And then even when in the bug episode talking about the cicadas, how the cicadas in the 17 year brood, and I think even the 10 year brood, they're emerging earlier now by a couple of weeks which means that the ground temperature and the, the cicada internal clock, which would be influenced by ground temperature and light levels and all those sorts of things, is being affected enough by the external climate and the external temperatures to alter the bug's behavior. And we're seeing this with things like birds, with migration. They're migrating north earlier uh, because it's starting to warm up as, and then they can fly north earlier. But this can cause, this can, can cause a big issue depending on how the different species are adapting to this. Because what you really don't want in these situations is your your animals or whatever to arrive before their food source is there. So this can cause big issues if, say, birds start migrating sooner, but the bugs that they're feeding on, their cycle is relatively the same. Or if bugs are moving, but the plants aren't out yet. So this, this, sort, of, this sort of change really snowballs because so many things are dependent on these like gigantic, consistent global systems, which are changing now faster than they than they have before. And as uh, as these changes happen, there's also some plants and animals that are their ranges are shifting. So not just with my migratory creatures, but some animals that and and plants and fungi and bugs and all sorts of things, which are animals. But it feels necessary to mention them because they're a big one. Uh, <laughs> they. Some of their ranges, they're like, okay, I can't exist if it's this cold. And then their most most northern exposure stops getting that cold. So then they can move into that area and move into that niche. And this can cause issues if they have no natural predators in this niche, because then they can kind of like take over. And we see this with things like, I think like Dutch elm disease or the pine beetle or things like this that are brought into a new location where there's no natural predator and they just take over. Um, And this can happen just through things like an expanding and a shifting range, you know? Uh, And this can cause other species who were originally in that range to suffer and to potentially even go extinct based on how this shift happens. And with this, these range shifts, they can cause shifts in the type of plants that can live there. And then this can change biomes. So the, the boreal forest biome right now, which is like kind of Northern forest, not kind of, it is Northern forest. Uh, it is invading the tundra biome. So the tundra biome is less treed, more open, very snowy. This is where we see things like caribou and Arctic foxes, creatures that are adapted to the tundra and are not adapted to the boreal forest. So as the boreal forest starts to be able to expand its area, we're gonna see loss of creatures due to loss of habitat. And that's one thing we hear often about why are species, so many species at risk, it's loss of habitat. And this is one of the reasons why that can happen. And as some of these, as some of these things start to change too, it's it's that, you know, so these systems that protect us are also then affecting 
all of these um, biological systems that protect us as well, that we're yeah. not always as privy to, or we don't always understand as well. Uh, so for example, like obviously there's a lot of talk about the dying off of the Great Barrier Reef around yeah. Australia. And, and one of the big concerns that that has is the Great Barrier Reef has a lot of important effects for controlling the, the water ecosystem there, but also just like preventing flooding and things mm -hmm. like that. Protecting we, the shoreline. Protecting the shoreline. We've seen lots of stuff like that in parts of North America where a lot of um, wetlands have been destroyed. Yeah. That you get a lot more soil erosion in those areas. A lot You're more flooding. A lot more flooding because you don't have these natural drainage areas anymore. And it, and <clears throat> you're removing these protections and a lot of these ecosystems are they're the ones that are most affected by these subtle changes in climate change before other areas are affected absolutely and the the with the the great barrier reef we're seeing it with lots of coral uh, coral reefs around and you might have heard the term coral bleaching so this is like if you see coral after it's experienced coral bleaching it looks like ghost coral it's like white and that's because coral is actually like a, a symbiotic organism, basically, like the coral structure itself, but then it has microorganisms that live inside of the coral. And if the coral gets really stressed, say by increasing temperatures or increasing acidity, which is happening a lot as well, then for some reason, what the coral does is expels the microorganisms that live inside of its tissues and it needs these microorganisms to live. So then the coral dies. And then if the coral is dying, then it's not going to be able to support fish life and tons of fish live in coral reefs. Like they're incredibly important to marine ecosystems. So that's not good. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the, the actual, the changing acidity in the oceans is actually due to not, not so much like climate change specifically, but it's due to the forces that are adding to climate change. Yeah. So our, you know, our emission of greenhouse gases. So uh, as CO2 ends up in the ocean. So the oceans are actually a huge reservoir for CO2. They're a hugely important part for even CO2 capture, even to the point where like when a wave comes crashing up and it, you know, you know, then a whole bunch of bubbles form and stuff like that. Some of that is CO2 that's being absorbed into the water. Yeah. Weren't the early predictions about climate change, like the early, really bad predictions, weren't they, they came out not to be as bad because we didn't realize how much of a carbon sink the ocean was? Yeah, exactly. And but what happens is as the ocean starts to absorb a lot of this carbon dioxide is it acidifies it. Right. So it just causes some reactions and it mm -hmm. creates more and more acidic content in the water. Yeah. So if you've heard of uh, like this affects the, o uh, the oxygen content in the water as well. Yep. So you get these hypoxic zones, these dead zones where nothing can live. Mm -hmm. And if you're swimming along, like there's animals can't live there because there's no oxygen left in the water. Mm -hmm. You're even seeing this in river ecosystems yeah. where they're starting to have algal blooms and yeah. river ecosystems that they didn't have, whereas the algae is getting so much uh, potential to grow at a certain time of year that it's literally sucking all of the oxygen out of an area and creating a hypoxic zone and yeah. a lot. And there'd be these huge fish die offs. So there's been stuff like that in a lot of the river ecosystems in North America uh, and some lake ecosystems and stuff like that as well. Going back for a second to the the, the changes in temperature and, and reducing severity of winters, which, like, when we're in the middle of a cold snap and your pipes freeze, it seems like, hey, maybe this global warming thing isn't so bad, but it's all connected. And like we mentioned with these systems are just going to kind of hang out in place longer. So we could have maybe less awful winters overall, but if you get a cold snap, it could last longer and it mm -hmm. could be more severe. And as these as these winters change it's it's very problematic because of things like bugs and fungi mm -hmm. who really like in Canada we uh we're very fortunate in a lot of ways because we live at a 
it's colder here in winter and a lot of stuff dies and a lot of stuff can't survive our winters. So there's certain things that uh, are more prevalent in the States that we may not have here because we have a nice cold winter that can kill them off. Like the brown recluse spider. <gasps> one, of the, <laughs> one of two poisonous spiders in this province. The other is the black widow. <laughs> spider facts. Every episode is bug episode. Um, but one of the uh, one of the ones we don't think about very much, but that is potentially the most dangerous in this respect, are fungi. Because, fun story time now. Uh, if you want to know more about this, listen to Radiolab's Fungus Among Us podcast. But here's your clip notes. So there's a... Like a group of yeasts, and yeast being our single cell, like our single celled. Yep. Yeah, our single celled um, fungi. They're responsible for things like beer. Yep. You know, we we use these a lot. And there's a species, uh, a group of them called Candida, and these are the the species that they Candida species have been around a long time. They are responsible for things like yeast infections. So they're and uh, thrush in babies. Candida species are stuff that we live on us and in us all the time. And most of the time they're fine, but if the situ- if the conditions get just right, they're very opportunistic and they they'll have a bit of a bloom. And so this this one yeast species, Candida auris, uh, began being seen in hospitals around the world, infecting people around 2016. They started noticing it, and it was springing up in multiple countries, like far ranging countries, like Pakistan, South Korea, England, India, and South Africa, uh, simultaneously. So travel could not explain it. So they're trying to think like, okay, what is causing this increase? And and what is causing this fungi to suddenly start attacking humans? And possible a possible reason is as temperatures heated up in certain areas, the yeast evolved to be able to survive at higher temperatures. And uh, we can think of this like, because yeast is like a single cell, it's going to reproduce very, very quickly. So if you have a bunch of yeast and they're they're used to existing at a certain temperature, right? Like 30 degrees and they can survive like 31, whatever they can, they can survive around there. But if it gets to like 33 consistently for a week, you're going to have a lot of them die off, but some of them aren't going to die off just through natural genetic variation. Some of them are going to be okay at 33 degrees. And then if that continues, that's the yeast that will proliferate. And then you have 35 degrees and then a bunch of those die off, but some of them don't. And then they proliferate and they have their yeast babies. And then this continues to increase until it reaches 37 degrees Celsius, which is the human body temperature. And uh, this can allow them to get into our bodies and survive within us. And if they continue to go through this process, these yeasts, then they can uh, even survive our fever defense mechanism. Because humans getting a fever, right, is is a defense mechanism. <laughs> we get hot and that hopefully kills off whatever's trying to take over. And then we can go back to normal. And... Uh, a side note theory to this story of part of why uh, this is a theory that they're coming up with. So this this whole uh, fungal heat level existence, whatever I'm trying to say, uh, this theory is part of why they think mammals took over after dinosaurs went extinct instead of smaller reptiles. Because smaller reptiles existed too, things like crocodiles or ancestors of crocodiles and lizards. So it's like, okay, well, why didn't they just take over if conditions were so good for dinosaurs? And so the idea is that the cataclysm that took out the dinosaurs, it it caused volcanoes, it caused a darkening of the skies, it caused ash, it made everything, like, there was, like, a, an increased dampness. So you have a cold, dark, damp world full of decaying vegetation and dead bodies, which is like a fungal dream 
fungi are decomposers, right? They, they're always decomposing whatever's there. They like dark. They like wet. That's why you have things like foot fungus and all of that. And so it's the perfect habitat for fungi to flourish. And the fossil layer, the layer in the fossil record after the impact layer, because you can like see where the impact happened, the layer after that is full of spores. And the theory is that the fungi could infect the reptiles easier than the mammals because reptiles are cold-blooded. So they're much more likely to be the temperature of the surrounding area, and they don't have a fever mechanism. So they can't defend themselves in that way. Whereas with mammals, if the fungus got inside, then we would just heat up and kill it off. But as temperatures increase, so does the, the, the fungi are able to evolve because they can evolve much more quickly than we can and wreak havoc. Yeah, if, if, uh, if, you're, if you're having trouble understanding like the evolution process here, it's right. uh, a good one that comes up a lot is uh, the growing antibiotic resistance yes. in certain, uh, and the, the growing like super bugs and things like that, yeah. or even just like the growing, the worry of like using lots of like hand sanitizer and stuff contributes mm-hmm. to these super bugs. Is because, so think about it, right? You got your Lysol, it's 99.9% effective or whatever, but we're talking about trillions of organisms. Yeah. So 0.1% or even 0.01% or whatever it might be. It's a lot of organisms that survive. And each one of those is going to create another one. They're going to create more and it's going to proliferate super fast, right? It's why like, even though you cook something, if you leave it out sitting at room temperature for too long, more bacteria grow on it and stuff like that, because you can't eliminate all the bacteria even through cooking. It's just, there's too many of them. And so it's the same sort of thing. So then, you know, so if you wipe your hands in Lysol and you kill 99.9%, well, then that 0.1% comes back and grows. You put more Lysol on, you know, well, you eliminate all those by 99.9%, but a few, they're, they're the ones that survived are the ones that are more resistant. So then they're going to, the ones that have survived the second round are more resistant and on and on and on and on until you basically have a species, a new species or a, an evolved you know, member of the population with a high tolerance to either the drug or the cleaning solution or right in this case, temperature. Yeah. You're making like the toughest version that you could. Yes. And part of why this can be so bad with things like bacteria and stuff like yeast is any organism that can reproduce asexually is going to pass its exact genetic information on. Right. So it's not like with humans where, you know, if you're like, I don't know what a good example is here. Uh, well, a good example like, that often comes up is like for people with uh, cystic fibrosis, right? So um, cystic right. fibrosis is recessive. You need two copies of the gene. One of the advantages of being a sexual organism is that one of those copies is going to come from mom. One of those copies is going to come from dad. So unless mom and dad are both carriers or one of them has it and the, and the other is a carrier, it's hard to get CF, uh, cystic fibrosis, right. right? So it's like if I have, that's why sometimes people who have uh, histories of cystic fibrosis in their family they'll get uh, certain genealogy tests done before having children so they can find out what the risk of having a child with cystic fibrosis is because cystic fibrosis is extremely debilitating and off- you yeah. often need a lung transplant like a complete wow. lung transplant um, the outcomes are much better now than they used to be yeah. uh, and I think we even talked we about did. Yeah, yeah, we touched on this. yeah so it's the same sort of thing right but yeah with an asexual organism like budding yeast which is just usually the cell grows on it and then it splits off yeah. it, uh, it is going to get the exact 
exact copy. So if it has any immunity to a drug or heat or any of those types of what yeah. would be, you know, um, detrimental to the organism, it's going to teach, it's going to teach that quote unquote. <laughs> it's making, it's it makes a clone. Yeah. It's making yeah. a clone of yeah. itself. And again, and then because these organisms, their genomes are very simple, yeah. they're a single point mutation. So a single change of a base in the DNA can confer these types of resistances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, there's, I think it's bacterial species can, uh, they can actually transfer their their plasmid, right? Their their DNA ring. Have yeah, this? yeah, some they, of them. Some, can, some yeah. of them, and not all of them, but like if you have you, so you have these individuals who have evolved this resistance, and then so you might think like, okay, well, it's just that those ones, and we can we can control for that. But there are certain species who can kind of take, they can like copy their plasmid and like give it to a friend. And then the friend can start making copies of it. Yeah. And the friend being another bacteria individual <laughs> who doesn't have the adaptation and or the evolution. And then that one can start proliferating that as well. So it's what yeah. a lot of um, genetic modifying technology was based yes. off of before CRISPR really came onto the scene. It was you would use these bacteria that have this natural ability to do that. You would open up the ring of their DNA. So human beings have a double helix DNA and it's like long, big strands. Yeah, like a ladder twisted. You've yeah. seen it. And, and bacteria have that same structure but it's in a ring so rather than a lot of like discrete chromosomes you have one single ring and that's why it's so much simpler it's just yeah. less information uh, but basically what you do is you open that ring up you put a new gene in if that's of interest to you and then but because that bacteria does this natural thing where it can confer that change into new organisms you have that plasma get injected into the organism of interest for you so you know maybe you're modifying a plant species and then that what happens is that piece of DNA that you're trying to get into your plant. It's it's not even a piece of DNA that the, the uh, bacteria understands. It's only something that the plant can understand. It gets cut out of that piece of the plasmid, inserted into the plant genome, and then the plant starts to make this new gene. So uh, it's something that we've learned to take advantage of, and it is. It's what confers some of these resistances for uh, bacteria and stuff. Yeah, and this has a lot to do with the the speed at which uh, a bacterium or a yeast or something can evolve versus how quickly something like a human or like a polar bear can evolve uh, and why we hear more about adaptation with the larger creatures. Yeah. Because for humans to evolve, you need multiple generations. So an evolution doesn't happen over one generation. Like, say I wanted to have descendants who like only had red hair. I would have to, I do not have red hair, for those of you who haven't seen me, I, so I would have to choose a partner, a mate, with red hair. We would have to create offspring, and then all of them would have to choose someone with, with red hair. I don't know how I would do this, it would be a little excessive, but they'd all have to pick a mate with red hair, and then produce children, and then they would have to pick a mate with red hair, and maybe a few generations down the line, the whole family, all of my descendants, all my descendants at some point would have red hair. We could evolve red hair. But I can't do that right now. I could with dyeing it, but that's a different thing. Hair was a weird example. <laughs> but the, so dyeing my hair would be like an adaptation, right? I can, I can make a bit of a change, but it's not, there's no, it's not going to pass along yeah. to my offspring. Is that a, is that a decent example? Yeah. You're, okay. you're, what's <laughs> happening is you're changing your, like you're changing your phenotype or something like if you're, if you're to think about hair dyeing as a certain type of adaptation, right? You're, yeah. you're changing Social it temporarily, adaptation. but it's not changing your germ line, which, yeah. you know, are, yeah, your, your yeah. the sperm or the eggs, the zygotes and things like that. Yeah. Um, so it's not getting into that. So it's not getting passed on or conferred to your, to your children. Absolutely. No. Mm -hmm. 
and some other fun things that climate change is causing after our little <laughs> diatribe into biology, which is what you you know us by now. Um, so other things that are happening, we've talked about the glaciers are shrinking, ice on rivers and lakes is breaking up earlier and earlier, and the plant and animal ranges have shifted, trees, might, trees and plants could be flowering sooner, and we're seeing an accelerated sea level rise, and these longer, more intense heat waves. And the... Uh, a not great statistic I came across was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which includes more than 1,300 scientists from around the world, forecasts a temperature rise of 2.5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit over the next century, which is bad. Mm -hmm. Very bad. Yeah. And so the current climate targets that were set out, like in the Paris Agreement and things like that, are to try to limit temp the warming to one and a half degrees Celsius by 2050. And it doesn't, that doesn't sound like a lot, right? You know, but we're talking about like the, a global average Whoa. change. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a lot, you know, a, a degree and a half change. Like it, it can't really be understated how um, dependent all of these systems are on one another. The yeah. balance that makes life on this earth possible, right? Like, you know, you, you can look as, you know, all you have to do is look over at Venus to see a greenhouse effect yeah. run amok. And you can sort of see why like, you know, and obviously even to the point where we've been searching the skies for Earth-similar planets for, you know, over a decade now. There, we've obviously found some, but they're so, you know, you have to look in a very specific section of a star's orbit. You're looking for very specific things in the atmosphere. And then ultimately, you still don't really know if they're habitable for, for you know, um, for any type of life to form or if they're stable for long enough. And that's like the big thing It's like, life was able to form on earth because it was stable for a long enough period of time for these things to start happening and for organisms to adapt then evolve and proliferate and become new organisms and new species and them do that and even where you know there's been five mass extinctions in earth's history but you know and usually at the worth a period of instability where life takes a long time to recover but yeah. in the same way that your lysol is only wiping out like 99.9 percent .9 of the germs yeah. a lot of these mass extinctions were wiping out like 99 percent of the species you still got one percent of these species running around and they're going to create the next generation of life yeah mm -hmm. some some things can adapt or they can evolve or they can like like the story you always hear about the mammals with the dinosaurs is mammals like hit underground so like maybe yeah. they avoided it to an extent and these sorts of these sorts of global issues, they have really local impacts. I mean, just think about, like, for Davis, just think about the, the last few days of heat. Like, how did you feel existing in that heat? Oh, it was awful. Like, yeah. it was, um, <laughs> yeah. I've never, I mean, my apartment, my house got to 30 degrees Celsius during the day. Um, yeah. and it was, it was just brutal. I, uh, I had to move my, I've been working from home. I had to move my office downstairs. Like I had to sit under a fan there yeah. and there was just, um, I literally had, so I, so some tips for keeping your apartment cool, but like, I literally had to run the gamut of like all of these things that week was yeah. like, so I would basically, I would have to stay up to like you know, a little bit later than normal because you couldn't even go to bed at 10 o'clock. It yeah, was just so, so hot. You had to wait till the sun fully set. The sun would set. As soon as the sun went away, I would open up all the blinds, <sighs> would open up all the windows in the house. And I mean, it was still 20 degrees Celsius at night. So it wasn't even cooling off that much, but it was not 30 degrees and even just to get the air cleared out of the house, right? Yeah. And then I would wake up in the morning. Before the sun. Before the sun. It would be like the slightest amount of relief because now it would be 22 degrees in the house rather than 30. Yeah. And... I would close, 
I would leave it for just long enough that I would close all the windows in the house. I would pull all the blinds shut, uh, block all the sun out as much as possible. And I would even like, you, you, I would close off rooms that I wouldn't be using during the day to kind of trap the hot air in there and keep the cool air where I needed it and things like that. And then start the cycle all over again. By the end of the day, I, you know, opening everything up. I think I took like two cold showers a day. Like it was insane. And then your, your brain just starts to feel like mush. Like you can't think straight. Yeah. The, I was, I was the same. I had like I wasn't opening my windows at night because it just was, it was just too hot. Mm-hmm. But I had like all my blinds, curtains pulled, closed. I felt like even more of a hermit than I felt the last few months because like I'm not even looking at the sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just like inside when I'm inside. Um, and this this psychological distress that we feel, it's not it's not just in our heads, as it were. Like this is nope. a thing that's being measured in uh, in living in excessive heat or when there's like a big heat wave, crime and interpersonal conflict increase apparently the murder rate always goes up in heat wave there have been major riots that have broken out during heat waves and then on top of this like personal discomfort this interpersonal conflict you have impacts to infrastructure like highways and roads buckle if it gets too hot water lines can burst burst transformers can explode and then this makes it harder to get help to people who need it and it just again we've got this feedback loop right of like people not enjoy like people not enjoying themselves and then people can't access them to get help to them so then things get worse and then it just it can it cannot be good but so in addition to things like closing your blinds and your curtains and keeping your windows closed if you're experiencing a heat wave what other things that you can do are like david said use fans so make sure your fans or if you have ceiling fans are rotating counterclockwise that's going to help to circulate the air you can send them the other way in winter to warm yep. things up. Very I learned this like two years ago. I was amazed. I had a ceiling fan and I clicked it the other way. Pro tip, clean your ceiling fan before you do this. Because if your <laughs> ceiling fan is dusty and you switch it to go the other way, it will just blow dust all over your room, which is <laughs> gross. <laughs> I, learned, I learned a good thing. Uh, it's a tough lesson. Uh, and then also if you have a standing fan or something, you can put a bowl of ice in front of it and then you can get like a nice cool breeze. I had a fan just blowing on me while I slept because there's no way to sleep otherwise. Uh, one thing I didn't think of, but that makes sense, is if you have like a barbecue or a way to cook outside, cook outside. I know you have to go outside and be in the heat, but you're not heating up the inside of your house with like an oven, which is a good call. And then, as Davis mentioned, having to move his office downstairs, if you have like multiple levels in your abode, then move lower to sleep if you're having a hard time because hot air rises. So the basement is going to be colder than your bedrooms. And if you don't have multiple rooms, you can just move from the bed to the floor. Even that, if it's really bad, can provide some relief for you. Uh, You can also wear loose, light-fitting clothing to kind of allow air to circulate around your body and your body to breathe. Stay well hydrated, very important. Um, And if you're being well hydrated, but you're sweating a lot, make sure you're replacing your salts as well. Yes, very important. So Mm -hmm. you can do things like Gatorade, get your electrolytes up, salt tablets, something used by like ultra marathoners and stuff, just to, your body, like your cells need sugar to function. Your cells need salt to do a bunch of the processes that they need. Your brain needs salts. So very important to keep those up. And if you really need to go somewhere with air conditioning for the hottest part of the day, like midday to afternoon, like go to a store or government building or a library. Now that things are opening back up, like in Canada and in the States and things like that. These are movie theaters. Yeah. Yeah. Going to work. If you have to go to work is actually like not a bad thing right now because a lot of our workplaces will be will have air conditioning or at least better airflow. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's so there's lots of little tips you can do, and a lot of jurisdictions when they when they experience heat waves like this, they'll open like cooling centers and yeah. things like that. And yeah. it basically it's just a convention center with the AC cranked up. Yeah. Uh, even to the point where if you do have AC in your home, uh, during a heat wave, you shouldn't try to run the AC as cold as you would want it. Like, you know, if you want to keep your house at 20 degrees Celsius, you shouldn't really run your AC that low in a heat wave. Uh, it, it's really taxing for your AC unit. It's also a huge power draw. You want to actually set it. I know it'll be less comfortable, but you want to set your AC just like two or three degrees below the ambient temperature. Uh, it'll keep your house cool. It'll keep it conditioned, but it won't put as much strain on your AC unit. Uh, because it's just not possible for your AC unit to clear out that much heat, no matter what you, unless you've got some crazy industrial unit, I don't know. But uh, yeah. That's good to know. And so these are small things you can do to make yourself more comfortable during a heat wave. But there's also things we can do as society and as humanity in general <laughs> to uh, help solve this big problem that we're in. And there have been many examples through the past of humans facing intense ecological problems and coming together to fix them. The one that I always think about is uh, DDT, which is the pesticide. If you've if you've taken a biology class, you've probably heard of Rachel Carl's, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and how there was this pesticide being used, and it was starting to get passed up the food chain. So this is something called bioaccumulation. So there's there was some pesticide in like the bugs. And then the bugs would get eaten by another creature. And then that creature would end up with more, like a higher level of pesticides in their system. And this increases until you have like predatory birds, like eagles, with like super duper high levels of a dangerous pesticide in their system. But we've also done this with, with like CFCs, which is chlorofluorocarbons, which is just a fun thing to say. Uh, these were in, was this aerosols and cooling units, right? Aerosols, uh, some of it is still, yeah, in certain, certain coolants. And uh, even it was used in certain manufacturing of like the old, um, the old containers that like McDonald's used to come Styrofoam. in. Styrofoam! Yeah, they were made with CFCs and things like yeah. that. So they would get <laughs> into the atmosphere and they were eating away at the ozone layer and yeah. created a big hole in the ozone layer yeah. that's only just uh, starting <laughs> to heal. Yeah. Actually, I talked about this in the third sock from the sun episode, mm. the chlorofluorocarbons. And what happened to make McDonald's stop using styrofoam and polystyrene products? People, society, people being like, we don't agree with your use of this and we're going to stand up and we are going to, like, we as a society are going to say that this is not okay. Like, we are yeah. going to demand better of you. And that's that's kind of what, what we have to do now, right? Like, it's it's a lot of political willpower and public pressure. I mean, we can see it to an extent with things like when everyone got upset about straws and sea turtles, companies started saying, okay, no straws, which was a bit of an easy cop-out for them. But anyway, public pressure caused them to make a change. And we can do it again. <laughs> we, we can believe in us. We can do it again. Yeah. You know, if there's a silver lining to everything that happened with this heat wave, um, you know, I think part of it really was that it was one of these things where you didn't you didn't hear a lot of people talking about it like, oh, well, this, you know, we, we get heat waves all the time. This is no this is no out of the ordinary. Like a lot of the discussion was around like this is historical. We've never seen records broken like this before. So many in a row, so yeah. many different places, so many days of record breaking temperatures. And everybody was just saying like, this is, this is what climate change is. Like, this is what we are seeing. These are the early effects of climate change. The unfortunate thing is, is that, you know, even if we were to stop emitting carbon tomorrow and 
launch massive carbon recapture programs around the world, yeah. we would still be yet to see the worst effects of climate change. Uh, the problem is, is that, you know, a lot of these targets are out 2030, 2050 to do some of these things. And by then we're going to be experiencing some of the worst effects mm -hmm. and we're going to have created so much instability in the world that like, we don't know what's going to be, you know, we don't know what our world will look like in, in that many years. So, you know, 2050 is 30 years away yeah. and we're already experiencing, we're, you know, we're going to experience things like this heat wave every year now and mm -hmm. the extreme weather events, more hurricanes, more storms. And the less we do now, the, the, the more we have to do later and the harder it's going to be to do it later. I mean, think about with Katrina, with Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. Katrina that came to the States. Um, it, it was really bad. But part of the reason why it, it impacted New Orleans so much was because their retaining walls and their retaining water systems, they hadn't, they hadn't built them in a, in a sufficient way. You know, they, they, weren't, they weren't like up to snuff to do the job that people predicted they were going to have to do. And then when the hurricane came in and it broke through all of these things, now you have far, far more damage happening in your city that then you're going to have to spend even more money than you would have had to to reinforce your barriers in the first place in order to clean it up and then build proper retaining walls and things like that. So it really is something that the more in front of we can get, the more money we will actually save in the long term because this is coming you know mm -hmm. well we're living it now yeah we're right? in it i think and that's the thing right i think you know it it is i think people have really started to wake up to this yeah. um i think we recognize now that the only way to prevent some of these things is like big radical sweeping change and i think it's you know i do get i think you're probably in the same boat as me is like you get a little bit tired of the rhetoric of like oh we just like recycle more and it's all about the individual because that's what these companies yeah. have been putting on because they have not wanted to admit that they're that they're contributing to this they want to make it everybody else's problem yeah they don't they don't want to foot the bill to fix it exactly and like i mean obviously there was you know just just to kind of go off on it a bit, little bit like there was a uh, greenpeace ran a sting operation on an exxon mobile lobbyist they were tricking they tricked him into thinking he was being headhunted for some job oh. and they got him on camera speaking to all the things that they had been doing as lobbyists and as company as a company to essentially neuter Biden's infrastructure plan, yeah. which had billions of dollars towards green technology. And they had put all this effort into basically making it so that he couldn't get any of those things passed. And he basically had to take them out of the bill. Yeah. And it's caused quite the stir, but you know, unfortunately it's the same sort of thing. We talked about a few of the, a few of the main, the major ecological issues we faced, right? Like uh, one that always sticks out in my mind is leaded gasoline yeah. and the companies, well, one, we have known that lead is really toxic for humans since the days of the ancient Roman empire, because they actually believe that that's one of the major yeah. things that contributed to the collapse of the yeah. Roman empire. But we've known this for, for, for a, a long, long time. time. <laughs> and the th and the thing is, though, is that these companies were using lead and gasoline as an anti-knocking property for the gasoline. It makes it a little bit more stable. It makes your engine run a little bit better. Uh, there are other things you can use for anti-knocking. They're just not as cheap as a bunch of lead. Uh, you know, lead's an element. It's it's plentiful. It's all over the place. You just dig it up. You drop it in. No one and wants it because it's bad for humans. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody really wants to use it. It's, you know, there are limited applications for lead and things like that. Um but these companies knew the damage that lead could cause to human beings and that the, you know, that the exhaust was giving off lots of these particles. And it took, you know, it took a few scientists, especially really standing up, putting their careers on the line. Yeah. A lot of their careers were destroyed, even though ultimately they were successful, their reputations were destroyed. And 
that's the unfortunate part of this now is that like why has this gotten so bad is because we do we have all of these whether it's companies or individuals or you know or systems even yeah. right like to governments put, to not put the blame on anything right it's just you yeah. know all of these things have been essentially for lack of a better term and to not mince words about it lying to us yeah. about what they know you know these oil companies a lot of these oil companies have known since the 70s since the yeah. 60s yeah. what some of these things were going to be doing to the environment we didn't know the scope or the scale to what they would get to but we've had a lot of people who don't want to address it they just want to you Keep know making money yeah make their money live their comfortable lives and leave it for someone else to clean up and the the thing is now is that if if we as a generation of millennials and, you know, we've sort of failed in some of our duty to the next generation, you know, like I remember being a kid and a lot of hope of like, well, we're the, you know, we're, we'll save the world and we'll solve these problems. Yeah. And, you know, we got we are the future. and we got trapped into the same systems. And now, you know, now we look kind of to the younger generation to help us out. Yeah. It's sort of all these things, but yeah, it's it, it, another generation of, oh, well, it, I won't live to see this problem. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I actually, uh, I heard an interesting report on the radio on the way over here to record this, saying that the University of Calgary has discontinued its its oil and petroleum engineering focus. Yes. And so now, because it had such low enrollment, it used to have like 40 students a year, and then it has had seven graduates in the last two years, because the kids coming up now and the university students coming up now, they're not choosing it as a major, they're not choosing it as their focus because they don't see a future in the industry. One, because the industry has been hard hit the last few years it has not been as uh mm -hmm. economically especially productive here. especially here in alberta mm -hmm. but it's it's also these people seeing that we have to do something else for the future and so now that they have there's still oil and petroleum like courses and things that that these students can take but there's also going to be courses like more courses on the green energies and different ways we can move forward in a more productive healthier way for the planet and like for me, the, the clearest example of this, like people are lying to us, but it's like against our own health is smoking, right? With tobacco. Yep. Like yep. they knew from the fifties that it was bad and they just kept saying it wasn't. And I mean, even I was born in 91. I grew up with the smoking, non-smoking option in restaurants. It Same. took, right. It took like almost 50 years from when we learned it to when we were able to fix it. And that was just like a human health problem that was literally killing what hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Yeah. Right. So with something like climate change where you can like pretend to brush a lot of it off it, it's going to be it can be challenging but we can still fix it mm -hmm. that's one thing that all the scientists say like it's not it's not over till it's over right like there's there's some there's stuff we can do we just got to do it and as much as it is not an individual responsibility the more we do try to take those individual actions it can really help and you start to show other people that that there's these other options i mean even like using a reusable water bottle instead of buying a plastic one all the time, you're just showing the, these options are viable. And then if someone has a question, they can ask you and then you can spread this. And then the more you do these sorts of individual actions, I I feel like the more likely you are to take a larger action and, and maybe organize or, or reach out to government, right to government and try to make change on a larger level. Yeah. So that's the big thing, right? Yeah. This problem, this problem can be solved, just going to take our collective effort. And, yeah. you know, it starts with, you vote with your dollar, you yes. vote with your vote, if you're privileged enough to live somewhere where you can do that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and we just start putting pressure on our leaders and on each other and, yeah. and turning away from some of these things that we, we know are, are harmful to us and are not, they're not gonna, they're not gonna get us ahead anymore.
Exactly. We're basically ants, and we are stronger together than we are on our own. Mm-hmm. But yep. it, the ind- it's the individual of the ants that make the colony great. I don't know why it's all about bugs, but ants <laughs> are just a great dis- example of like the the how they think about the group, you know. Mm-hmm. And ants can accomplish really big things altogether, but an individual ant is real dumb. So. Let's work together, I guess, is the moral here. <laughs> this is my long rambling. You got, yeah, you got stuck in that yeah, analogy I got stuck a little there. bit. Yeah. That's fine. But yeah. Um, <laughs> there we go. Be hopeful. Yeah. So hopefully that wasn't uh, hopefully that wasn't too much of a huge downer for anyone that listened. Um, go back and listen to our baseball one. Yeah, exactly. We'll probably we'll find a fun topic to cover next week because we'll it's uh, you know because yeah we like we like to mix them in a little bit more but we felt like this was it was it was a really good time for us to cover this topic it was something that we knew we eventually needed to talk about wanted to talk about um it's something that we're both really affected by as individuals yeah. uh, and as science communicators and yeah i think the big thing is is that like it's hard to not look at these stories and lose hope but that's not the that's not what the takeaway really is the yeah. takeaway from these things is that Yes, the situation is dire, but now is the time to go to work. Obviously, it'd be great if we didn't procrastinate and wait this long. <laughs> it's just not how humanity works. It's just not how we're wired. Every single one of these problems that we've mentioned, we had to we had to get to a point where the, the problem became so unignorable that people's outrage over uh, like eclipsed any of the you know billions of dollars of industry from hiding these things yeah. or you know politicians from putting out platitudes like and that's where we are now yeah. we need to we need to channel that whether you want to call it outrage whether you want to call it civic duty you know whatever label you want to give it we as a species need to dig deep and find that for this absolutely. and i think we can you know absolutely like let's Let's not have this just be a tragedy. Let's have this be a lesson. Mm-hmm. Let's learn from this and 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 make it so that other people don't have to experience this same stuff that the people who just had to experience it and the people who will continue to experience it. Let's mm-hmm. do what we can to to just learn. You mm-hmm. know, fail. If if we look at this as a, a failure and everyone always says failure is the greatest teacher. So mm-hmm. there you go. Absolutely. Well, okay. uh, yeah. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you if you made it this far and you you're, <laughs> you're able to put up with us for this one, but uh, yeah, we're uh, not sure what we're going to cover next. Um, As always, if you have topics, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Let us know. Uh, reach out to us on Twitter at Temporary Expert uh, if you want to send us some feedback on the topics you'd like to see us cover, anything like that. Yeah. You can reach out to me uh, on for third sock from the sun mm-hmm. youtube videos about uh science science related topics my first series on plastic is coming to a close and uh that's on youtube and their sock puppet videos so they're i try to make them entertaining when talking about stuff that is really can be very upsetting in a lot of ways <laughs> uh you can find me on facebook for that one as well and if you are I mean, if you're looking at Third Sock or if you're listening to us and you're liking the show, please consider leaving a review or um, giving us a nice five stars. Uh, <laughs> Shameless. <laughs> Shit plug. Uh, we don't know how to do this part, so it's, we're learning. Uh, give us give us stars if you like us because uh, it helps other listeners find us and it helps us hack the algorithms. So anyway... She's Sarah Bannister. (laughs) And he's Davis Leung. And we have been your temporary temporary experts. experts. Thanks for listening.